Welcome to Piedmont Arts. I'm Rachel Stewart. Piedmont Opera, based in Winston-Salem, is about to embark on its 43rd season in the age of COVID-19. And so much is different now because of the virus. You know, what will this new season look like? How do you have performances and keep everybody safe? Can you have a live audience? Well, we're going to talk about these questions and a lot more uh, with Piedmont Opera's general and artistic director, James Albritton, as well as composer Kenneth Frizzell, who has penned one of the works that's going to appear in the first production of the season. So welcome to both of you. It's good to have you here. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. So, James, I'll start with you. You're doing two productions this year. Can you tell us what they are and how you're going to stage them, how this is going to work? Yes, a good question. (laughs) Uh, I'm actually going to answer your question in reverse order. So when COVID-19 struck, we canceled a production that was just about to go into the theater. And going forward, I thought, well, we can't just sit here and do nothing. What are my options? We actually did one of our fundraisers as a, a, a virtual event, and that sort of gave me the courage to say, all right, well, let's try doing a production virtually. Frank Martin, who helped us with our virtual fundraiser, was sort of upfitting his business to be able to do uh, live streaming. So I said, let me be your first. Let's let's do this. So while everybody, many, many opera companies were saying they were going to continue and go outdoors, uh, some just said we're going to continue. And I just didn't see a way to any of that. So I checked with our venue here, the Stevens Center, and the Stevens Center said they were not going to welcome audiences this year. Uh, th- that comes and goes as everything does in COVID. But they were welcoming us to live stream. So then my next challenge was to try to find an opera that was appropriate in terms of social distancing on stage because singers, of course, we're super spreaders. So whereas in life, you have to keep a six foot of distance, singers need 12 feet because of the deep breathing and the projecting. So that means small casts. So I I started thinking I had a lot of different plans up my sleeve but uh, I have always been a fan of Ken's music and have always thought that his uh, folk song settings were each of them little mini operas. And as I said, he participated with uh, one of our singers that will be in the production, Jody Burns, in our uh, fundraiser, and they sang uh, a group of his folk songs, and that sort of planted a seed in my brain. What if we did Ken's mini operas as the singers were were in the orchestra because I didn't see in the small pit at the Stevens Center a way to have an an orchestra either because they also have social uh, distancing issues. And um, then what could I pair with that? And I remembered a, a beautiful work that I first learned in graduate school by Carlisle Floyd called Slow Dusk. And there are only four singers in it, and it is set in North Carolina. And so then I thought to myself, I'm standing here right in front of, as luck would have it, a beautiful double bill. And I could do Carlisle Floyd's Slow Dusk, set in North Carolina by a South Carolina composer. I could pair it with this new work, if Ken would let me, of these folk songs that would potentially be danced rather than sung on stage. So I'm also dealing with my social distancing of singers issue because 
singers would only be on stage for less than an hour. And the whole thing seemed to start to come together and make a lot of sense. So I went to Ken and asked him if he was interested. And without missing a beat, he trusted me and said yes. And uh, here we are. So you figured out these two works that you could do. What are the biggest challenges for the performers? Um, well, and, and logistically for you as an administrator? It's a good question because when's the last time I live streamed or tried to put something on film or any or, or camera or anything? And the answer is never. So we're all learning as we go. As a matter of fact, I spent some time these last couple of weeks designing the opening credits for this show, as well as a couple of videos that I intend to insert in the middle of Slow Dusk. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I, I have a clear idea about what I would like it to look like, but uh, we're taking it steps at a time. I mean, the other the other challenges are budgets are slashed. I mean, I, I, I initially tried to produce this on 10% of what I would usually spend on a production, which became completely unrealistic. So I, I've ooched it all the way up to 20%. And you do the best you can. I mean, I have to plan a camera script for this show. I have to imagine all of the shots that we're going to take and then prepare them in my score so that you've got twice the, the staging to deal with. You have the actual staging and then you have the, the camera staging. And the benefit, the massive benefit for this in the time of COVID is that the, the camera allows you to tighten up that 12 foot of distance so that a duet can still seem like a duet as opposed to hello, hello, hello from across the football field. But all of it, in terms of the standard way you stage an opera, it's to some small degree going to be, that's your mark, stand there, and let's discuss this now. Let's, as, as uh, theater people would, it's table work. What is your character's uh, motivation here? What is your objective? What, you know, so that you're doing your best to express that more with your upper part of your body and particularly your face than we normally think of an opera. And that's a little bit of a challenge to reimagine how you are expressive as an opera singer. I want to ask Ken now about the music and what he's written as part of Echoes from Carolina, which is what this pr first production is called. You're, you're uh, providing the music for Act Two, which is called From Appalachia. So can you just describe that a little bit? Well, I can tell you about the music itself. How it works with the singers and choreography is going to be a wonderful surprise for me because I, I don't really know much about how it's envisioned or what it's going to look like. So that's very exciting. But the, the music that they're staging, as it were, I have uh, written two books of Appalachian folk song settings, 16 in all. And I think Piedmont Opera is, is setting eight, eight or 10 of them. Is that right? Nine. Nine. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about how they came about. I um, was trained as a classical composer in an era of very high modernism. And in the 1980s, I became really interested in Appalachian folk music and became really obsessed with going to fiddling conventions and ballad sayings and all this kind of thing. And I also am kind of a library nerd. So I would go up to Boone and the Appalachian collection and just 
reading and listening as much as I can. There's a wonderful um, expert in Blue Ridge music, Paul Brown, that lives in Winston-Salem. He was a big help and introduced me to a lot of old-time fiddlers and banjo people. And um, after about a year of uh, immersing myself in all this stuff, it dawned on me, you know, you have some old relatives. They're not from Appalachia, but they're from Eastern North Carolina and have virtually the same kind of British, Scottish, Irish roots. So I went to my grandmother and great uncle with a boom box and some blank cassette tapes. And I, tried, I said, do you know any old folk songs? And they just sort of left, like, I don't know what you're talking about. They said they didn't know anything, and I could take that contraption away, you know. But I something <laughs> something told me to leave that boombox and some cassette tapes with them, and I showed them how to record. And interestingly, they're both very competitive with each other. In this case, the competitive thing worked because songs started coming back to them, and they were, you could just hear them grabbing the microphone from each other. No, it goes like this, or I've got one here. And about a month later, I received this padded envelope with about 120 songs that they had recorded. And a lot of it was Mary Had a Little Lamb kind of things that everybody would know. But a lot of it was the real thing. I mean, the real Scottish, Irish, British folk songs that I had been obsessed with. And it really was very moving for me to connect back, you know, through my family to this music that I'd fallen in love with. So I wrote a few instrumental pieces based on some of those tunes and other Appalachian tunes. And there was a festival in Boone and somebody was playing a, a piano piece of mine called Blue Ridge Airs. And uh, it was this wonderful pianist, Jeffrey Kahane, that I've worked with uh, over the decades many times. And he said, I think it would be really interesting if we had a singer actually come and sing some of the tunes that you've woven into the piano piece. So that's how the whole Appalachian songbook thing got started. I set two of the songs that, that had been purely instrumental. And then gradually it grew into a whole book. And uh, Jamie's wife, Marilyn Taylor, actually, wonderful soprano, premiered the first book uh, with me at the piano. And then I guess maybe 10 years later, a second book came about. So um, it's been a very slow process, but I think about half the songs in there, literally note for note, were taken from my grandmother or uncle. And some of them came from other sources. Just for clarification, are those tunes that come from your grandmother and uncle, are they the same as what you find on the western side of the state in Appalachia? Or are they just sort of from a similar, I don't know, uh, place and time? That's a really interesting question. I would pose it differently, and I would, I would start by asking, is it possible that there's one standard version even in the western part of the state? And, of course, there's not some of the great folk song collectors would notate 30, 40 different tunes to say Barbara Allen or a song that most people know. So um, most of them were similar to the sort of archetypal tune that you'd hear in the mountains. But some of them, there's one called Charmin' Birdie and there's one called Billy Boy. The Billy Boy doesn't sound anything like the standard Billy Boy versions. It's actually quite beautiful. And um, I said it note for note. So the answer is yes and no. They, they do relate. But like any kind of tradition that's passed down orally, you know, everybody puts their own spin on it. So there's no, that's part of the beauty of folk music to me is that there is no perfect version. It's, it's an uh, organic thing that, that keeps blooming in each generation. Well, that, that was, uh, hits on a question I was going to ask you. You know, you're classically trained. You said you come up in this modernist era. Mm -hmm. 
And why do you like the folk music so much and the music of Appalachia? What was it about it that pulled you in? I was very intrigued by the kind of ancient modal harmony, which is very different from high modernism. It's about as different as you could get. One of the modernist aesthetics is uh, not to have a tonal center at all, but every note sort of bebops around and, you know, it's influenced by cubism and splicing and dicing and all these kinds of things. And I still love very much many aspects of modernist music, but I, I think my ears just needed something that created a drone or that created a larger and quieter space. If an old timer heard these folk song settings the way I've set them, they'd probably hear it as having modernist influences. Not that they would necessarily know what that meant, but I don't think Doc Watson would be tapping his toe to these. Um, so, <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, they're, they're really more in the kind of art song tradition than they are. I mean, it's not, this is not pure mountain music, believe me. Okay. So I'm, I'm well aware of that, that I put my own twist on these things. And, and so, as you said, Jamie, the performance is really, it's going to be piano and yes. voice, right? Yes. Uh, it, again, it's another beautiful coincidence that I stumbled into. Uh, Ken, of course, as he just said, has said his folk songs like uh, like art, in, in the art song tradition. So they were written for voice and piano. And what I discovered shortly after I started my homework on Slow Dusk is that it was also originally written for piano. And it uh, was written in 1949 by a 22-year-old Carlisle Floyd, and he didn't get around to orchestrating it until uh, like 56 or so. And uh, when I first inquired about whether or not we could do this uh, without missing a beat, Mr. Floyd approved it for us to be performed with just piano. So that was really cool. And I guess that's kind of unusual, right? Yes, very unusual. So that's a silver lining. You've got some unusual, unique things that you're able to do or have been pushed to do, I guess, well, exactly. because of the situation. Uh, you know, you, you, you asked me about the entire season earlier, and I have to say the, the same sort of happy coincidences continue because we were originally planning in the spring to do Rossini's version of the Cinderella story with all the chorus that makes that part of its charm. I let that one go, but I recovered with a version of the Cinderella story that was written by Pauline Viardot in 1904. And she wrote it to be performed by her students in her Parisian salon. She was a great soprano who retired to teaching and uh, had this very famous uh, salon that everybody wanted invitations to. And so she also wrote her opera to be performed with just piano accompaniment. So in terms of being true to the work, I haven't had to, to back down at all on all of the pieces that I've chosen this year. And again, the bonuses continue with Madame Viardot's uh, Cinderella. We are giving uh, an opera written by a woman for the very first time in our 43 year history. So everybody feels the, the loss of live music. Everybody is tired of being homebound. I don't mean to make light of any of that, but as you continue to trudge through this time, there are these little blessings that sort of drop from the sky every now and again. And I feel like at Piedmont Opera, we've more than gathered our share of those blessings in this season. It's really helpful to look at it that way. And actually, yeah. I think it's going to be a, a very interesting season. And um, I want to thank you both for taking time to talk to us about 
what's coming. And just so that uh, our listeners know, the first production is called Echoes from Carolina. It has two one-act productions within it. The first one is, uh, Act 1 is Slow Dusk by Carlisle Floyd. Act 2 is from Appalachia by Ken Frizzell, who we've been talking with today. And those productions are October 16th and 18th. Yes. And looking ahead to March of 2021, the 19th and 21st, that's when you'll have the Viardo Cinderella in the salon. Yes. Well, I want to wish you both well, and uh, I hope the season goes well and any other endeavors, you know, (laughs) any other projects that you're working on. And thanks for spending time with us and hang in there. Thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you very much, Rachel. We've been talking to Piedmont Opera's general and artistic director, James Albritton, and composer Kenneth Frizzell, who has penned one of the works that will appear in this season's schedule. For Piedmont Arts, I'm Rachel Stewart.